This is Chris Casey, Managing Director of Windrock Wealth Management, a unique investment advisory firm with a focus on the macroeconomic big picture and an entrepreneurial mindset to seize on opportunities. Today we have the pleasure of being joined by Eric Margulies. Uh, Eric, thank you for joining us. Good to be with you. Uh, Eric is an award-winning, internationally syndicated columnist and war correspondent. His articles have appeared in the New York Times, Times of London, and numerous newspapers throughout the world. He's the author of two books, War at the Top of the World, An American Raj, Liberation or Domination. And I do recommend, I, I've only read the latter book, but I, I highly recommend it for anyone listening. And he's also a regular contributor to such websites as the Huffington Post, LouRockwell.com, and he's appeared as an expert on foreign affairs for such television stations as CNN, BBC, France 2, France 24, Fox News, CTC, and CBC. Today we're discussing several geopolitical hotspots which may impact U.S. economy and financial markets, specifically the potential for conflict in Syria, North Korea, and the South China Sea. Now, Eric, let's start with Syria. The civil war there has been going on since 2011-2012. If you look at a map as to who controls what territory, or if you look at the, the sheer number of participants as far as the, the, the groups involved in the conflict, I think it's fairly confusing to most observers. Can you summarize what's going on here? Oh, I think it's also equally confusing to Washington. Uh, different parts of our government don't know what to do and uh, are in conflict with each other over Syria. It's a big, horrible mess. Uh, it is a huge uh, human rights uh, disaster, human, humane disaster. Uh, this small country, uh, under 25 million people, uh, half the population are refugees now. Uh, four to 500,000 people have been killed in this civil war that began in 2011. And they, uh, one of the saddest parts, which is not very well known in the United States, is that we started it. Uh, we, we and the French and the British uh, financed a, uh, a rebellion against the ruling dynasty in Syria, the Assad family, and uh, in an effort to overthrow it, to punish the Assad government for refusing to turn against its old ally, Iran. And we were going to punish it. This was going to be another regime change, as in uh, Ukraine. Uh, but it didn't work out that way. It was badly planned, badly executed. And what the result was that we ended up arming all of these uh, extreme Sunni groups uh, to fight the Shiite-dominated government in Damascus and its allies, who were uh, Syria's Christian minority, its Greek Orthodox minority, its Armenian and uh, uh, democracy, and uh, it's, uh, it turned out to be a horrible situation. Anyway, after three years of fighting, now the uh, Syrian government is gaining the upper hand uh, against the U.S. financed and armed rebel groups who are aligned with Saudi Arabia and the United States and Turkey. Well, you had mentioned or had written recently that 
ISIS was basically, if not created, obviously re received initially a great deal of U.S. support in or order to destabilize the area and overthrow the Assad regime. I, I think that would shock most people. Could you elaborate a little bit on that? Yes. Um, I, I was in Afghanistan in the 1980s when the United States uh, armed and financed the Afghan Mujahideen, freedom fighters as they were known, uh, Muslim militants from all over the Arab world to attack and overthrow the communist governments uh, and Russian occupiers in Afghanistan. The huge success, huge victory, contributed to the collapse of the Soviet Union. Now, fast forward, uh, the same idea was being used whereby the U.S. and Saudi Arabia and Turkey came up and the Gulf Emirates came up with the idea, uh, we'll do it again, we will assemble a large group of militant Islamists who are mainly aligned with the uh, extremely conservative Wahhabi movement in Saudi Arabia. Uh, we'll get them all fired up and we'll, we'll unleash them against the Syrian government, uh, uh, whom they regard as apostates and infidels and non-believers because they are not mainstream Sunnis, but they are minority Shias aligned with Iran. So that's the story. So we created this rabble, this armed horde of fighters, and in it we created the ISIS movement, Islamic State, whatever they call them, who are mainly veterans of the Saddam Hussein's army and that we crushed. And uh, we armed them, we turned them against the Syrian government, uh, except that they were mostly made up of 20-something fanatics. And uh, they ran out of control. We, we unleashed them. And now we don't control them entirely either. So over the past three years, what the U.S. has been doing in Syria is, uh, is trying to use ISIS to attack the Syrian government, uh, but at the same time uh, trying to prevent them from running amok in other areas and committing atrocities and attacks in Europe as they've done. It's a big, it's a huge fiasco. They cost us billions of dollars in arms and time and training, and it didn't work. Now they're sort of running out there uh, somewhat out of control. We still have some influence over them. You'll notice ISIS has never attacked Israel, for example. And uh, it uh, is uh, widely disliked by most people in the region. The latest thing is the U.S. government is trying uh, a ploy to convince us that that the Afghan resistance, known as Taliban, are really ISIS, and to uh, paint them with the brush of ISIS, to because uh, ISIS is so hated and has such a bad reputation, is worse than Taliban. So now you're going to see all the news reports in Afghanistan talking about fighting ISIS, as was the few days ago dropping of this monster. 20,000 pound bomb called a Moab on uh, some tunnels in Afghanistan. And now the people who were there reported, were according to the US, were ISIS people, not Taliban. It's confusing, but you have to watch your labels because most of them are fake. Well, at the same time, they dropped the, the mother of all bombs that you mentioned. Of course, President Trump ordered the cruise missile strike against some Assad forces, in, which brought, according to both the, the Americans and the, the Russians, relations to at least a, a post-Cold -Cold War 
uh, low. What, what is the real potential there for a, a direct Russian-American conflict? Do you, do you see that as a potential? I'm very worried about that. I've been writing for years. I keep saying our number one foreign policy priority in the United States is to maintain good relations with Russia. They have 1,700 nuclear warheads pointed at us. They could blow us off the map, and we can do the same to them. We cannot afford to get into confrontations and spats and serious disagreements uh, with Russia, nor can we afford to do it with China. Uh, but we're doing exactly that. The uh, effort by Hillary Clinton's people to paint Russia as responsible for her defeat, which is absolutely absurd, uh, and blame Russia for somehow rigging the American election, which is absurd when you consider that we in the United States have been rigging people's elections all over the world since 1945. Um, there is that chance. And now what's happened is this resurgence anti-Russian hysteria that's been developed in the United States, which is totally untrue uh, or baseless, uh, has pushed us into a confrontation with Russia over, over Ukraine, where we have no national interest whatsoever, Ukraine and Crimea, over Syria, ditto, uh, and even so in, uh, in Asia. How many people in, uh, in Washington know that North Korea's northern neighbor is Russia? So we're playing with fire. It is very dangerous. You know, related to that, the cruise missile attack that recently uh, occurred in Syria, how much of that was say, actually orchestrated against Russia or, or Assad forces versus being a message perhaps to North Korea or China. Do you, do you see that as a possibility as well? Uh, to a much lesser degree. I mean, it was, yes, it was the American government trying to act tough now. And here we come, we're the biggest guy on the block. We can do whatever we want. But it was also for domestic political reasons. Uh, look at the sea change that occurred in the U.S. where all the the, uh, the liberals and the neocons who all hated Trump uh, are now singing his praises because he committed an act of war. Uh, Trump is very pleased with himself, and uh, but uh, I suppose there was a an element of warning to North Korea. But the North Koreans are very tough characters, uh, and they're all dug into their mountains, and they're not going to be worried by some cruise missiles. Uh, they will just continue to be obstinate. Uh, it was a very clearly political ploy, and in fact, it was the result of what I am almost 100% sure was a uh, was a false flag operation done by the Syrian rebels who we support to stage an attack with chlorine or some nasty chemical like that, uh, which would immediately be ballyhooed into an attack by the evil Syrian government. Look, common sense says the Syrians had no purpose whatsoever in staging a, a, a limited chemical attack on, a, on an unimportant town. Uh, we've seen this happen once before. It's a false flag, it's a fake, and very effective. Let's move over to North Korea. I, as most people know, they obviously have some nuclear weapons since being first tested, I believe, in 2006, which was the culmination of years of work, fairly well telegraphed. 
But there's obviously a big difference between having a nuclear device and being able to deploy it or utilize it. And so the U.S. has been focusing, especially in the last year, on North Korean delivery systems, their technological development. And do you, do you believe this is really is a bright line for the U.S., meaning the U.S. government has decided they cannot allow this at all costs? Well, you know, there is a way out of this problem, and that is that Korea, North Korea, and the United States have been in a technical state of war since 1953 when the first Korean War ended. And ever since then, the Koreans were a nasty, ugly, brutal regime, but we have plenty of those as our friends around the world, too. Let's look at Vietnam. Let's look at Egypt, for example. Um, Morocco. Uh, it's a brutal regime, but it has been asking the United States, please sign a peace agreement to end the World War II, uh, the Korean War, and please recognize us and stop trying to overthrow us and isolate us economically which the U.S. has been doing. We've been waging an undeclared war against Korea ever since. Every time of this year, we stage military maneuvers around the border of North Korea involving up to 350,000 U.S. and uh, Korean, South Korean soldiers with aircraft and aircraft carriers and the whole thing, which mimics an invasion of North Korea. Uh, and we've been talking about it for a long time. So. The North Koreans are nervous as wet hens, and they feel they're going to be attacked and that the Kim government is going to be overthrown. Perfectly logical feeling to have. So their only recourse out of this is to build nuclear weapons, because they know that if Gaddafi uh, had uh, nuclear weapons, that uh, he would still be in power. That's and interesting. That, that option of actually embracing a peace treaty and recognizing the state of North Korea, I never hear mentioned. Never. Never. This, this is my own uh, idea. Make peace with them. Uh, establish diplomatic end, of, end the trade embargo. And let's, but then what's the point of keeping our 28,000 troops in South Korea and our and two wings of warplanes in South Korea, plus all the bases in Japan. All this is premised on a, a nasty, hostile North Korea, which we stick with pins every once in a while to make them even more crazy. Well, I would imagine that by recognizing that with a peace treaty, recognizing the state of North Korea with a peace treaty, it could also destabilize the, the ability of the Kim family to rule North Korea just as much as it would, say, if the U.S. ended a trade embargo with Cuba 40 years ago, it probably would have destabilized the, the Castro hold on, on Cuba. That's quite, quite right. And by the way, the, uh, the Japanese, who are just uh, next door literally, uh, are uh, perfectly happy to see a divided Korea. Uh, they don't want to see a united Korea because the Koreans really detest the Japanese and are seething with revenge for the last hundred years. Uh, better that it goes this way. But for the United States' interest, we don't have to fear a nuclear attack, which I think is most unlikely from North Korea, even if they had an ICBM and appropriate warheads that could hit the U.S., why, why would they do it? Uh, they're not crazy. Uh, they may be eccentric, but they're not going to commit nuclear suicide. We have ringed North Korea with nuclear weapons. And we could vaporize the whole country in less than an hour 
including the leadership. So uh, the Koreans, know that for this is a self-defense measure for the Kim regime. And I say better bottle them up uh, in North Korea. Just forget about them. Uh, we don't worry about the government of Laos in North Vietnam or Uzbekistan, another U.S. ally that boils people alive. Uh, Korea should be added to this list, but then they would change their whole military posture and uh, diplomatic architecture in North Asia. And the ruling powers in Washington, the deep government, the military-industrial complex don't want this to happen. What's interesting, you mentioned Japan's perspective on Korea, because I'd imagine one of the options the United States is considering, in addition to, you know, recently we've we've heard talk about shooting down some of the North Korean missiles. We've heard about uh, bringing back nuclear weapons to the peninsula. We've heard about really provocative statements about literally decapitating the North Korean uh, government and and perhaps a a first strike on their artillery and missile bases. but the other option that, that probably isn't spoken about as is, is much that the U.S. probably considers as viable is rearming of Japan. Is that, in, since Abe was elected, clearly we've seen some steps in that, in that direction. Do you think that's a, a likely outcome of continued uh, strife on the Korean Peninsula? Well, I think it will. I used to write for Japanese newspapers, and I, uh, there's a very strong anti-war sentiment. You know, we, we bombed about... Uh, uh, at least a, a quarter, if not a third, of all Japanese cities were, were uh, firebombed in World War II. And the Japanese still have not gotten over that horror. Uh, so um, there is opposition, but the, the, the current prime minister, Abe, in Japan, is a, a good, realistic leader, and he's trying to pull Japan forward into, in, into taking a more militarized posture, because right now it's almost entirely passive, even though it has sizable armed forces. But Japan's problem is that it is hostage to North Korea. It is totally 100% vulnerable uh, because it has no nuclear weapons. Uh, Japan could, from my sources, I understand, Japan could produce nuclear weapons within 30 days uh, of deciding to. They have all the components. Uh, But... uh, so could the Koreans probably too, the South Koreans. But Japan, right now, Japan is sitting there with North Korea threatening to launch missiles. And if, if we, the United States, attack North Korea, I think it's very likely that the North Koreans will fire a couple of nuclear-armed-tipped missiles at Japan. And it will only take two or three to completely destroy Japan, which is now the world's third-largest economy, and create just millions of casualties. It would be a nightmare. Uh, we cannot allow that to happen. Well, it seems that North Korea represents a bit of a game of chicken between the U.S. and China in the sense of China really doesn't want a either destabilized peninsula, doesn't want a refugee crisis, certainly doesn't want an American ally taking over the entire peninsula. On the other hand, at least some uh, government officials appear to clearly believe that uh, the development of ballistic missile technology is, is a bright line for them. So how, how do you see the Korean situation playing out and, and particularly China's actions or, or roles in that development? Well, Washington hopes that the, the, uh, the Chinese will come in and squash North Korea. Uh, that's the earnest dream 
there. Uh, the Chinese might do it. If, if the government were to collapse in North Korea and there were chaos, uh, could very well happen, particularly if it looked like the U.S. and, and its South Korean ally, or I should use these yeah, ally, uh, are going to invade North Korea and establish themselves there because North Korea is right next to Japan's, one of its premier uh, premier industrial areas, the, the northeast, known as the Dongbei. And China is very sensitive about that. Manchuria is where the Russia-Japanese War was fought in 1904. And uh, it's, uh, it's likely that China would take action. But right now, China doesn't want to get involved. They're, they're smart. They're patient in Beijing. Uh, they don't want the Americans and South Koreans there, but they're trying to curb the aggressive instincts or the saber rattling of uh, the North Korean leadership as much as they can. You see, they've stopped, put a ban on importing some South North Korea's coal exports to China. Uh, the Chinese are taking, I would call it a, a wise and a conservative, conservative approach as compared to our saber-rattling. Could you, it, it clearly the American government does believe that the Chinese stopping North Korea, even to the extent of potentially invading like you're talking about, is the preferable course of action. Do you, if that is the American government's desire do you see any kind of quid pro quo as far as China getting perhaps a pass in the South China Sea or in some other areas? Well, that's a very good question. Um, tensions are very high in the South China Sea. Uh, China has adopted, by contrast to Korea, China has adopted a very aggressive policy in the South China Sea by militarizing all these atolls and turning them into really what are stationary aircraft carriers? And the Americans are jumping uh, up and down over this. And they think it's intolerable. Um, the, and China's antagonized many of its neighbors by taking this very pushy policy. What the Chinese are really trying to do is break out, the, to, to have an exit from the South China Sea, which is ringed in by islands and atolls uh, for its fleet, so that its fleet can break out into the high seas. Uh, it's a problem that Japan faced previously. Uh, Chinese are very determined about this because uh, since the Chinese all bought cars and are now joyriding around, uh, China has become very dependent on imported fuel, which can be cut off in a day's notice by the U.S. 7th Fleet in the South China Sea and beyond. So not only are they extending their defensive perimeter by, by claiming uh, the South China Sea and its, the associate islands, but they're also going to get an oil kicker to boot in the sense that there's some significant reserves there. What, what um, and obviously there's a number of countries that, that are allied against their fairly aggressive claims. You, you of course, have the Philippines, Brunei, um, Vietnam, tai, Taiwan to an extent. Is, how do you see the South China Sea playing out? I mean, is there any potential for a resolution, or do you see China simply exerting uh, its, its aggressive, continuing its aggressive stance, and you know, exerting de facto control over the area? Uh, I think eventually, eventually, China will dominate the entire entire South China Sea. 
Um, but I think you'll do it slowly. The Chinese are great believers in, in moving slowly and deliberately and uh, taking their time, don't, being patient. Um, they will, in effect, uh, make all kinds of aggressive things and then back off for a while until the anti-Chinese alliances dissolve and then start up again uh, sort of with salami tactics uh, taking this area. This is a long-term Chinese strategic goal, and I think we have to accept it. Well, given, especially in 2015, it appeared, you know, the U.S. was clearly trying to exert, trying to display uh, the freedom of passage through the area. Continue either flying, you know, say, for instance, long-range bombers or bringing uh, naval ships in fairly close proximity to some of these islands. Do you, do you see there, that there could be a potential flashpoint between the U.S. and, and China in this area? What is the, the likelihood or the potential there? Most, most surely. I think it's extremely dangerous. Uh, we have uh, B-52s and B-1 bombers flying overhead and all kinds of warplanes. Uh, and don't forget, we've got the Japanese. Uh, the Japanese are in a uh, dither now uh, over Chinese claims to their Senkaku Islands and uh, the uh, very bad blood between the Chinese and the Japanese and their forces are whizzing around, their naval forces, submarines. So the Americans and the Japanese involved, never mind the Filipinos and the, the Brunei people, etc., um, whizzing around. So I think it, sooner than later there will be an air crash or planes will crash into each other, as they have in the past, uh, that will set the stage for an armed confrontation. Uh, we have to be very careful. We, we should stop it. The problem is that uh, we are treaty-bound to Japan to defend its Senkaku Islands in the South China Sea area. Uh, we did this a long time ago when we were, you know, the big power on Earth, and now it's dangerous because this could draw us into a clash between Japan and China. Uh, we need urgent diplomacy. We need people to calm down about this thing. Uh, instead, we're getting more belligerents right now from all sides. Well, it's a very scary world out there, and we only touched on a few of the hot spots, but certainly there's others, whether or not they're involving some of the major powers. But, Eric, thank you very much for your time today. You're most welcome. If listeners wish to read Eric's columns, they can visit www.ericmargolis.com, where he reaches global readers on a daily basis. Thank you for listening.